want to invite you to grab a Bible with me this morning, or you can open that Bible app, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, but join me in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. You all know that I love sports. I love watching sports. When I was younger, I, lo- I used to love playing sports, and I- I've seen all sorts of different kinds of things happening in the sports world, but I saw something recently that I've never seen before. It was a Saturday night in the fall, and I wasn't overly tired, so I decided to see if there were any college football games on TV. Well, in the fall, there's always a college football game on, and in the evening, it is usually a football game that has something to do. It's happening on the West Coast. Sure enough, there was a game on between USC and Arizona State. Now, I don't normally watch a whole lot of West Coast football, but since it was on, I thought, okay, I'll stay up for a little bit and give it a shot. And and I'm really glad that I did because I, I saw something that I never saw before. Right in the middle of the game, the game was stopped momentarily, interrupted by, of all things, a fox running out onto the field. Now, we've got a picture of this that we're going to put on the screen this morning. I've seen all sorts of different kinds of animals run out onto sports fields before. Birds, cats, dogs, but I've never seen a fox. Evidently, there are desert foxes out in the desert of Tempe, Arizona. And this fox had apparently been attracted by the bright lights of the stadium. These people had gathered together in the worship of the football gods. And the glorious glow had caught the attention of the fox out in the darkness of the desert. And he was drawn to the light. The only problem is, is that when he came in, everybody started acting in a very real, a very weird way when he walked into the house of the football gods. The, the football players immediately started walking away from him, them. They didn't want anything to do with him. And, and then suddenly, uh, these strange people started coming around him out onto the field, surrounded him, and started making these shooing motions with their hands. And all that kind of intimidated the fox, and he wasn't quite sure what to do. He wasn't quite sure how to handle this whole thing. We looked around him. He could see that he didn't look like anybody else. He wasn't dressed like everybody else there. Everybody else was looking at him, and they were saying to themselves, this guy does not belong here. And they were showing it by the way they were acting. Well, these official-looking guys, uh, they kind of spooked him. And the next place that this fox went is he ran and he jumped right up into the stands. And and when he did that, people were just kind of, uh, they they had been having a great time watching the game, but now they were losing their minds and they began to scatter as fast as they could. They did not want to be around him. They did not want to touch him. They did not want to be touched by him. Well, he ran up the stairs as far as he could go until he kind of ran out of sight of the camera lens. And it seemed like people were beginning to kind of settle back into their seats a little bit and get back to the game for a moment. But after a few minutes, he, the fox appeared back on the field once again. Now, this time, these official-looking people showed up again. But this time, there were many more of them. And they were making that same shooing motion. They formed a perimeter around him in order to kind of direct him into a corner tunnel for him to go to. 
Well, once this fox saw that, the, the, that there's, there was a tunnel there and that was nothing in the way of keeping him out of that tunnel, he decided to run up that tunnel as fast as he could. He ran away from the light into the darkness of the desert. I actually saw that happen a while back on a Saturday night. And as I was reading this passage, I thought to myself, you know, that's the same kind of thing that can happen in a lot of churches week in and week out. Where, where people are attracted to something that is different that is out th- than what is out in the darkness of the real world. They walk in and they expect to I- experience and to find open arms and a welcome. But instead, often what they find, what they're greeted with is people who are running away from them and kind of shooing them into the back corner and out of the building. James has something to say about this kind of behavior, and this had apparently been a problem that was happening in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning, because James has something to say about the radical acceptance of all kinds of people that, uh, that's supposed to happen in a community of faith. That as a church that represents Jesus Christ, we are to be a people who are welcoming and have open arms even to those who do not look, think, or act like us. So, in order to kind of help us think through this, I want to read what Pastor James has to say to us beginning in chapter 2. So your Bible's open in front of you. We're going to put these words up on the screen as well. You can follow along. We'll read these first 10 verses together here this morning. James says this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If, for if a man wearing a fine gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are, were called? If you really fulfill the, law, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. Now, let me just say here that, that I am well aware that in the climate that we are living in today, that, and especially over the last several years, partiality and favoritism and discrimination have become a bit of a hot-button topic among people. But, but let me just say that that ought to be the easiest thing in the world for us as believers in Jesus Christ to talk about. 
I mean, what James says here in this passage of Scripture is really quite simple because even a little kid can understand this. And this is not such a difficult topic for us to discuss. I mean, it's challenging when you talk about it from a political standpoint and all the ramifications that that come along with that. But as far as life together in the family of God, what we as Christians are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live, there is nothing really controversial about what we're talking about here today. James begins in verse 1, and he says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There is no misunderstanding what James is saying there. That word, partiality, is a word that is literally, it literally means to receive a face. That's what the word means, to receive a face. It's the idea of just accepting someone based on what it is that you see. In other words, um, if I were to uh, show you on the screen this morning a series of different close-up shots of different people, you would have a tendency to make a quick judgment about them. Based on the color of their skin, the shape of their eyes, the texture of their hair, the age that they are. And so I could show you all different kinds of images of people's faces and you would tend to form an instant opinion about that person. And that's what this word means. To receive a face means to have a judgment about a person based only on what you see with your eyes, based only on uh, physical or external uh, uh, appearances. Now, here's the thing. Most of us here in this room today are really bad at that. But James could not be more clear about this, that that kind of partiality does not have any place inside the community faith or inside the larger kingdom of God. And I want us to look at three reasons this morning why that's true. Why in the local church, we, uh, the, the local church should be the most welcoming people, the most welcoming place in the entire world. Our local church should be a place of radical acceptance. The first reason is just this. It's because discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. Discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. James gives an example of two people who enter into the same worship service, the worship gathering of a church. And so it's the Lord's Day, and these two people come into church. Both of them are relatively newer or unknown to the membership of this local congregation. And they're either visitors or they're they're just relatively new. And these two people are as different as you could possibly think. The Bible says that one is literally gold-fingered. That he walks in and he's got all of the finest jewelry on. I'm talking Harry Winston and Cartier and Gucci. And he's got all of the finest clothes, the, the smoothest fit. And as he walks into the room, it's easy to make, a, make a, a certain value judgment about him. This guy has got a lot of money. I mean, we're talking like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. But uh, about the same time, there's a second man who walks in as well. And James says that this man is, uh, he uses the word shabby to describe him. 
His clothing is dirty, dingy, disheveled. disheveled. The, the image that you get here, the image that James gives us is of a homeless man who hasn't been able to take a shower, who hasn't been cleaned up in weeks. It's not so much their appearance, though, but it's how they are treated that is so concerning to the pastor here. Because the well-dressed man, with all the jewelry and the fine clothing on, he gets all the special treatment. Uh, kind of like uh, the, an athlete or maybe a politician or a Christian celebrity walking into a church today and everybody just goes crazy in a positive way. Just ready to help them with their coat, get them a coffee and a donut and usher them right into the prime seating areas. It's a totally different story for the second guy, this shabbily dressed guy. He is told to kind of stand off in the back corner out of the way. Or even worse than that, he's told to sit at the, on the floor at the people's feet. And could you imagine that? I mean, there are seats that are available in the house of worship, and yet this guy is told to go sit on the floor. James' point here is to say that those kinds of things are incompatible. They're incompatible with the gospel. They are incompatible with the Christ of the gospel. And the reason why that's true is because in the gospel, there's only one classification for all of humanity. And what is that classification? Well, we are all sinners. The gospel says that every single human being is classified by this statement. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, Paul particularly makes it very clear in his letter to the Romans that the gospel is good news for sinners and sinful people. And that the gospel is announced to all people and to all nations. The gospel is for the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the male and the female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic. It does not matter. The gospel is for all people. And here's what James says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. He makes it very clear as he, can, as he says this, For God has shown no partiality. And if God is impartial then it makes sense that he expects his people to be impartial as well. And listen, I think it's interesting that James refers to Jesus in the first verse of this passage here. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, uh, that's a rather rare use of a title for Jesus in the New Testament. And I think that what James is saying here, he's using this very strategically, particularly when, when there were certain people who were getting favorable treatment in the family of God. And James goes on, he goes out of his way and he says, look, when you gather together in worship, there is one and only one who should get the glory, uh, who should get the praise. It's the King of kings, it's the Lord of lords, it's the risen Jesus Christ. He alone is the Lord of glory. And when you glorify anybody else based on how they look at externally, you are committing sin right here in the middle of the worship service. Because Jesus is the King. He is the Lord of glory. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the celebrity, not the person from a particular race or age or social economic background or political persuasion. 
when we make, when we discriminate and make distinctions among ourselves, James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. And that's not a hard concept to understand. Listen, discrimination in the eyes of God is evil behavior. That's what, what it says at the end of verse 4. I mean, we tend to think of something like that as being a second-rate or third-rate sin, but it's not. It's evil according to God, and, that, and that's what makes it incompatible with the gospel, a gospel that's intended for all people in all places. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, discrimination is incompatible with the gospel, but there's a second reason why we should show no partiality, why we should be a place of radical acceptance, and it's because discrimination is incompatible with grace. Discrimination is incompatible with grace, which is why it is incompatible with the gospel. What's at the heart of the gospel anyway? Well, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Listen, James's point is this. If you are, are going to receive the grace of God when you don't deserve it, then how could you possibly withhold the grace of God from anybody else when, 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 even when they don't deserve it? Friends, that's the point. Particularly uh, when you think about partiality, it is incompatible with the ministry of grace. And, and yet, that's exactly what was happening in the early church. They were treating outsiders in a way that was humiliating to them. In fact, you might remember this, but, but specifically, they were humiliating the poor by how they were treating them. And if you think back to Jesus and how he lived and what he taught, Jesus had a very different perspective about the poor. When Jesus started his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says that he stood right up in the middle of the synagogue. He opened up the scroll of Isaiah and he read these particular words from Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news and, uh, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In fact, later on in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, Jesus would go on and he would say this, Blessed are the poor, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let me just stop there for a second and, and make it very, very clear that th this does not mean that only poor people go to heaven. It does not mean that you have to be poor in order to qualify for heaven. It doesn't mean that, that all poor people automatically go to heaven. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does, however, reflect the fact that there is a need for humility in order to go to heaven. Proud people don't go to heaven. If you desire to, to be saved, you must humble yourself before the Lord as a condition of salvation. And listen, 
It's just typically easier for poor people to do that. It's easier for poor people to recognize just how lowly they really are. It's easier for poor people to depend upon the, on God as opposed to the rich. Rich people tend to trust in their wealth. And it's hard for rich people to submit themselves to somebody else. It's hard for a wealthy person to say, you know what, Lord, I surrender my entire life to you, including my money. Because often it is money that brings us security in life. And there's this fear of what might happen if we don't have that wealth. Listen, this is the whole point of the rich young ruler in that story of the rich young ruler, this guy who came to Jesus. The man says to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus could, could see right through that question. He, he never judged according to the face. Jesus always judged according to the heart. And Jesus knew what was standing in the way of this man surrendering his life to him. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go and get rid of everything that you have here on this earth. And then you will have a treasure in heaven. And then I want you to come and follow after me. And that was one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible because this man couldn't do it. I mean, here's a, a guy who saw something in Jesus that he desperately wanted. He goes to Jesus to find out what it is, but when he finds out what it is, he turns his back on Jesus. And the Bible says that he went away sad because he had great wealth. That he turned away from Jesus because of his money. And the sad truth is that, that, that that's a common story for those who have a lot of wealth. Because it's just so hard to surrender every part of your life, including your money, to the Lord. When the rich young ruler walked away sad, Jesus turned to his disciples and he says this to him. He says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And listen, that's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus says. It is not impossible. It's just very, very difficult. Having said that, let me just make another really quick side note here. I, 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 I did... I, did, I didn't say that it was sin to be rich, okay? I want, you to, I want to be clear here about that. I, I'm not, uh, there, there are a lot of rich Christians in the Bible. There are people like Barnabas or Lydia was one of them. Epaphras, he, he, you can read about him in the book of Colossians. In fact, uh, he's probably the man who founded the Christian church there in Colossae. He was a wealthy businessman. There's a lot of wealthy people in the Bible who surrendered their lives and followed Jesus as the Savior and Lord. And, and, and so I don't want you to get the wrong idea that, that rich people can't go to heaven because many rich people do go to heaven. What, what's so great is that Jesus loves rich people and poor people equally. Jesus loved rich people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. At the same time, he, he loved poor people like the Samaritan woman at the well and the lame man at the pool of Bethesda because he knew that the good news of God's grace in Jesus was for everybody. And yet, 
Jesus also knew that the poor tended to be rejected and marginalized by the rich and powerful in society. And they held a special place in his heart because they didn't stand a chance in this world. But Jesus wanted them to know you do stand a chance in the kingdom of God. And that's what really matters in life. Look at what James says in chapter 2 and verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, let not, has God, not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Look, the early church, which had so freely accepted the grace of God for their own salvation, was now failing to offer that grace of God to others because they did not think they were worthy of it. And we need to be careful of falling into that same trap. Friends, the the presence of sin makes all of us poor in the eyes of God. We are all spiritually bankrupt as we stand in the presence of a holy God. We, We all need His grace. We all need to approach Him with a spirit of humility. And that's why we should be radically accepting of others, even when they are materially poor or they're not like us. Friends, the church should always be a place of grace. The church should always be a place of radical acceptance of the high and mighty and a place of radical acceptance of the weak and the lowly. Well, there's a third reason that we should be a place of radical acceptance because discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. It's incompatible with grace. But finally, it is incompatible with the law of love. Discrimination is incompatible with the law of love. Notice what James says, beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the, the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That phrase, the royal law, is kind of a unique phrase to James. Royal, though, it just has to do with a king, right? And I think what he's talking about here is that there is a law uh, of the king that kind of governs everything in the kingdom. That it's the most important law of all the laws of the kingdom. And and, And in God's kingdom... The law, that law that that governs kind of everything else is the law of love. In fact, Jesus himself made it very, very clear that of all the laws and of all the prophets, everything that was written in all of the Old Testament, he said, could be wrapped up in two very simple statements. Love God, love others. You might remember the story of how Jesus was confronted by a religious lawyer in his day. This lawyer was trying to trip Jesus up, was trying to make him look bad. And so he asked Jesus, you know what, out of all of the commandments in the entire Bible, which one do you think is the greatest? Which commandment is the most important commandment for us to follow? Now, by that time, by the time of Jesus, there were over 600 commandments that the people were told that they needed to follow. 
And so uh, choosing one law uh, seemed to be like an impossible task. Which law is possibly the greatest? I don't know. But here is how Jesus would answer that question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It says this, And he, Jesus, said to the man, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And listen, what do these two commandments have in common? What one word holds these two things together? It's the word love, right? That's the royal law that James is talking about here. And it's this commandment, this royal law of love that makes discrimination and favoritism and partiality such a danger within the community of faith. Because it violates the one law that Jesus elevates above everything else. The one law of the kingdom. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that the greatest of these is love. It's why he says again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that love is the most excellent way. Listen, the greatest attribute of God that we tend to understand is love. God is love. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. When, and when he, we don't do that, when, when we violate that, we are violating the most important law that's ever been recorded in the scriptures. You see, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't, it won't matter if they're dressed in shiny clothings, clothing or shabby clothing. It won't matter if you love your neighbor as yourself. It won't matter if they're high and mighty or they're weak and lowly doesn't matter if they're old or if they're young. doesn't matter if they're, they've got light skin or brown skin or dark skin. It doesn't matter if they're European or uh, um, uh, Latin. It doesn't matter if they're African or Asian or Central American. None of those things matter because the royal law of God demands that we love all people by welcoming all people eagerly, enthusiastically, and equally. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. James says that if you've broken that one law, then you've broken the whole thing. You're guilty of being a transgressor and you deserve punishment. You deserve the wrath of God. Now, you might say, come on. I mean, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, all I did was show a little favoritism. I, didn't, I never stole anything from anyone. I never lied to anyone. I, I, I'm not a murderer. Well, listen. Can I just say this? Being mostly good does not cut it with God. It's not like God looks and says, well, you've got an 80% passing grade good enough. It's not like school where 80% might be fine. Eight out of 10? That does not cut it with God. You can't just break one law of God and uh, think that um, it, it's separate from all the rest. You know, if you break one part of the law, you're breaking the whole thing. 
And that's what James is saying here very clearly. And that's what the scriptures teach in general. Well, listen, you can commit mail fraud in the United States of America and you can say, well, at least I didn't break into somebody's house and steal something and I'm not a thief and at least I'm not a murderer. But you still, stole, uh, you, you still committed mail fraud and that is a felony. And when you show partiality, you, you may not be committing murder, but you are still a felon in the eyes of God. And, and I know that there are diff- different consequences that go along with these things, but in terms of judgment, you are categorized in the same way, transgressor. Listen again to what, it's, what James says in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it felon. And we all know that we are, which is why we need grace. Listen, knowing that this law of love is the royal law, the king's law, the last thing that we should ever want to do is start shooing people into the corner tunnel so that they can run back out into whatever it is that they came from. Friends, the light of the gospel is shining brightly and they need that more than anything else. The last thing that we should want is to be um, revealed as evildoers and transgressors in the sight of God because we have decided to show partiality, to show favoritism to one person over another based on how they look or where they came from or how much they're worth. The the church ought to be a place of radical acceptance. And that requires a radical gospel based on radical grace demonstrated through radical love. Aren't you thankful today that those are the things that are, those are the very things that God has shown to you by sending his son as a sacrifice to die on the cross And the point that James is making to the people back then and to people right now is this. If God has shown that kind of love and grace to us through the gospel, then that's exactly what is expected of us that we should show to all people who are desperate for the light of eternal life. Let's pray. 